0: Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to welcome back to the show now recurrent participant and guest, Mike Hofkamp, who, as you, of course, will remember, is the director of OB anesthesia at the Scott & White Medical Center at Temple and is a clinical associate professor of anesthesiology at Texas A&M Health Science Center, College of Medicine. Mike, welcome back.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Jed. I appreciate it.
0: So continuing on our journey here through a bunch of high-yield OB anesthesia topics. Uh, Mike and I are going to discuss anesthesia for cesarean delivery today. And um, so, Mike, do you want to give us an idea of kind of what you think we should cover, and then we'll hop in?
1: Well, you know, when I give my residence lectures, I'm always focusing on, for better or worse, on the ABA outline. So just to go over the ABA outline real quick, we're going to talk about indications for cesarean section. We're going to distinguish between urgent and emergent cesarean sections. We're going to talk about Aztec techniques and complications. We're going to discuss the difficult airway in obstetrics, and then finally, we're going to talk about aspiration prophylaxis.
0: Great! I think this will be great, and you know, I'm really looking forward to this because I remember as a resident, this was uh, definitely something that came up a lot. And one of those feared kind of moments as a resident on OB is that crash C-section, and maybe your attending is a few floors away, and a lot of thoughts running through your head about should you intubate or not? Do you wait for your attending or not? So I think we'll, we'll get some good learning here uh, to help out with that.
1: Sounds great. I'm looking forward to it, too.
0: All right. So why don't we start, as you said, with indications? I think that's always a good place to start. So um, tell me about the indications for uh, anesthesia for cesarean delivery, obviously the most uh, obvious one being someone who needs a C-section. But what do you think about when you think about kind of the indications?
1: So I like to break the indications for C-sections down into maternal factors and fetal factors. So for maternal factors, failure to progress and failure to dilate account for about 34% of the indications for cesarean delivery. And classically, there are three factors that influence the ability to push out a baby. It's the diameter of the maternal pelvis, it's the size of the fetal occiput, and it's the force of the contractions. Now, obviously, if you think about this logically... There's only one of these concepts that we can control actively, and that's the force of contractions. We do this with uh, the oxytocin infusions. And so the other things we don't really have a whole lot of control over, there are some women who are going to have babies vaginally, there are some women who aren't, and that's just how it is. Other factors, maternal factors, are preeclampsia and HELP syndrome. Now, preeclampsia and HELP are conditions that can be... uh, can be uh, uh, attenuated by delivery of the fetus. So someone who's got severe preeclampsia, the treatment for both mother and baby is delivery of the fetus. Same with help. Uh, Another maternal factor is repeat cesarean section. Someone who's had a C-section in the past is always given the option to try to deliver by C-section again. There are some people who want to try a vaginal delivery after cesarean section, and that is a, a somewhat riskier Route to delivery. And it that's can a be VBAC. done in highly.
0: Mean, is that what's called a VBAC?
1: It's, there's two variations of it. There's the VBAC and then there's the TOLAC. VBAC is vaginal birth after cesarean section. I think that in the obstetric anesthesia community, the preferred term is TOLAC, which is trial of labor after cesarean delivery. Got it. Okay. So, so either or, you're, you're risking essentially dehiscence of the scar from the previous C-section. You're risking uterine rupture, and that's a very, very bad thing. And so if you're going to VBAC, you're going to have to have a highly resourced hospital. So those factors contribute to repeat C-section being an indication for a cesarean section. Uh, another indication is twins or greater gestation. So you've got twins, triplets, quadruplets. You will be offered a cesarean section. Now, some of these women will deliver twins vaginally but only in the operating room with the ability to rapidly convert to cesarean section for twin B. Usually, I mean, twins is a entirely different lecture, but in a nutshell, twin A and a vaginal delivery always comes out vertex, and it's a little bit dicey what happens with twin B. So you have to be in the OR ready for a cesarean section for twin B if you want to deliver vaginally. And then, interestingly enough, is maternal request for primary elective C-section. So it used to be 30 years ago, we had somewhat of a paternalistic culture of medicine that said, you know what, you should have a baby vaginally, and you should only have a C-section if there is a true medical indication. With the shift towards patient autonomy and the trends of uh, women getting elective plastic surgery procedures done. The uh, ACOG determined that if women can decide to have elective plastic surgery, they should be able to decide to have an elective cesarean section. And so, it is not it is not rare. It's still a little bit uncommon, but it's not unheard of for a woman to say, "You know what? I don't want to be in labor." I don't want to have the damage to my pelvis from a vaginal delivery. Just give me a primary elective C-section. And some of my older colleagues, they they don't really, this kind of doesn't jive with them very well. They have to be reminded that we actually do this. But this is absolutely an accepted practice to do an elective primary C-section for maternal request.
0: And that's interesting, Mike. I think that's even a change over the past several years, right, that uh, it sounds like uh, what you're saying is pretty much all places are now uh, considering this to be a a justifiable reason for a C-section, where I think there was a lot of pushback not too long ago.
1: Sure. And, you know, it's always, um, you know, a physician has his or her judgment, and it's kind of like anything. I mean, if you're a physician who strongly believes that this isn't the right thing to do, you don't have to do it. But if you want to be accommodating to your patients, there are most OB gins are are doing this for the patients who request it.
0: Okay. Let me ask you a couple of things before we move on to fetal factors. So with preeclampsia and HELP, these things that the kind of the tr- true treatment for is delivery of the fetus, is it delivery by either C-section or vaginal delivery, or does it have to be a C-section?
1: Uh, it could be either or. But preeclampsia is uh, is an indication for uh, patients who, um, s- occasionally with severe features, they will want to deliver by C-section and not wait for the baby to come out vaginally. So that's an obstetric judgment.
0: Got it. So, it's so essentially um, the question is, can you wait for labor and a vaginal yeah. delivery, or do you need to go faster and do the C-section? Correct. Okay. So, what about fetal factors? What are fetal factors that are an indication for a c section?
1: Well, as we talked about before, uh, the diameter of the maternal pelvis and the size of the fetal occiput will determine the uh, whether or not you can push out a baby. So macrosomia is a fetal factor. Male presentation like a breech fetus is a uh, is an indication for cesarean section. And I'll I'll make an editorial comment here. So there's a great book by Atul Gawande called Better. And in that book, he talks about the difference between craft and industry. And so delivering babies by forceps, particularly breech babies that you can manipulate and get out with the forceps, is really a craft that's specific to the skill set of the individual physician. So like physician A is better or worse than physician B. So no physician skill sets are really the same. In fact, for something like forceps delivery and delivering breech babies, the skill set can differ markedly from physician to physician. These are all board-certified credentialed OB-GYNs, but yet they have completely different talents and skill sets for delivering breech babies. Now, in contrast just about anybody under the sun can do a cesarean section competently. They may not do it in the same amount of time or with the same amount of efficiency, but the C-section is kind of the lowest common denominator for getting a baby out. And so as we've tried to standardize the quality of medicine, we've moved towards the lowest common denominator of care. And so that's why in modern times I think you see a higher C-section rate because you can guarantee the quality a bit more than you can with the, um, with compared to delivering a breech baby by forceps. So nowadays, if you have a younger obstetrician with a patient who is breech, that baby more likely than not is going to be delivered by a cesarean section.
0: Got it. Okay. So we're becoming less and less comfortable with breech delivery uh, vaginally using forceps or other methods, and so we're now going more toward a C-section kind of automatically for those.
1: Yes. Yes. i say that's a fair statement.
0: All right. Um, Another field factor, and
1: probably the the most important one, is the so-called non-reassuring fetal heart rate. These are the the so-called decelerations that occur in conjunction with the uterine contractions. And they're an indicator of fetal non-well-being, and they are somewhat open to interpretation. And so one obstetrician's interpretation of a non reassuring fetal heart rate may not completely correlate with a different obstetrician's assessment. Nonetheless, these account for about 23% of the indications for cesarean section. And then um, the final fetal factor I'll talk about is persistent fetal bradycardia. So if you have a baby who's got bradycardia in the 60s or worse, you are pretty much going to the back for a stat or crash cesarean section.
0: And Mike, does it matter how long it's down in the 60s? And if so, is there a definitive cutoff or does it depend from obstetrician to obstetrician? I believe it's. I don't, I don't.
1: I'm not aware of any specific cutoff. I believe it's it's judgment, but in my experience, they're not going to let a baby be in the 60s for more than a minute or two before they're making moves to go back. In fact, there's a lot of times where they will go back, and by the time they get to the operating room, the heart rate has recovered, and they say thank you for showing up. We're actually going to go back to our labor and delivery suite. We just wanted to make sure we were back here to start if it persisted.
0: Okay, fair enough. So what happens with those really urgent or emergent C-sections? What makes something urgent or emergent, and you know how do we think about those?
1: So urgent uh, C-sections are C-sections that really should be done within the hour, and they can have many shades of gray, I'll call it. So, an urgent C-section, to me, is in the eye of the beholder. There are some indications for urgent cesarean section that are more timely than others. Like, for instance, non-reassuring fetal heart rate is an indication for an urgent cesarean section. So is failure to progress. Now, non-reassuring fetal heart rate is a little bit more urgent than failure to progress. But failure to progress can turn into an urgent, a more urgent, or emergent C-section in a heartbeat. So it's very difficult to exactly quantify which is, um, which is more important than the other. But for, and, and typically speaking, for an urgent C-section, you want to go to the operating room as soon as possible within the hour. And the anesthetic implications are that you're almost always able to do a regional technique, a regional technique could be a single shot spinal or adding medication to an existing epidural. Now, in contrast, an emergency section is a c section that really needs to be done as soon as possible. Now, there is a national standard of care for emergency cesarean sections. And so ACOG says that the, the so called decision to cut time, that means I'm an obstetrician. I determine that the patient needs an emergent cesarean section, the time that I make that decision to this time that I actually cut the patient should be 30 minutes or less. This sounds like a long time, and it is. And if a baby is down with persistent fetal bradycardia, in 30 minutes, they're gonna be anoxic and have a lifetime full of difficulty. But the 30-minute guideline is in place or it's more of I'm sorry. The 30-minute standard is in place to allow uh, lower-resource hospitals to stay in business. And if you're a hospital out in West Texas and you have one anesthesiologist who works for your hospital, that person can't live in the hospital. And so, and the same goes for the obstetrician. That person can't live in the hospital. So if you have a a, a patient with a baby who needs an emergency cesarean section 30 minutes gives people enough time to come in, prepare an anesthetic, and cut the baby out. Okay. Now, in contrast, the local standard of care is much shorter. Like, if you're at the Johns Hopkins Hospital and you call an emergency cesarean section, the expectation is that that, op- that patient goes to the operating room immediately and that an anesthesiology team arrives immediately and puts the patient to sleep, and cut is made, and delivery
0: is made immediately. Right. I think like, the idea is to do it within a matter of a couple of minutes, right?
1: Well, I mean, like, I think that in reality, if you've got a patient who's in a labor and delivery suite, 50 yards or so away from an operating room, and you make the decision to cut, it's going to be, at best, probably about 10 minutes to delivery. So... It takes a couple minutes to get the patient back to the operating room. It takes a couple minutes to get the patient moved over, monitors applied. You gotta prep the patient, you gotta drape the patient, you can defer a timeout, but all those things take time. It takes takes a minute or two to induce general anesthesia and secure the airway. So if you can do if you can call a C section and deliver a baby in ten minutes or less, you're doing really, really well.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. I remember the one time I was involved in a truly emergent cesarean section as a resident we uh, induced and as we were intubating the patient they were splashing some uh, some chlorhexidine onto the abdomen and cutting at the same time wow um, so that was truly emergent and and you know i think obviously you decide when you really have to 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 go you know, as fast as humanly possible. But I think, <laughs> uh, as you're saying, in general, probably and certainly, I haven't done obstetric anesthesia for a few years, so I think, it, in general, it makes sense that uh, if you can do it under ten minutes, you're probably in pretty good shape.
1: Yeah, and, and these emergency sections, uh, you try your best to to put a. Or if you got an epidural in, you try your best to dose it up and get a, a level that's dense enough and high enough to do a an emergency cesarean section, but A lot of times we're just putting these people to sleep.
0: Right. Okay. So, when you think about there's an emergent or an an urgency section, and what are you going to do in terms of your anesthetic techniques?
1: So, for an urgency section, to me, urgent means you've got time to weigh your options. And I would probably prefer to do a regional technique in that scenario. And you have to have some kind of situational awareness to understand what is going on with the patient and the baby because these situations can be very dynamic. And so the 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 obstetric staff should be pretty good about at least periodically, if not continuously, monitoring fetal heart rate while you're putting this regional Aztec technique in. Now, Again, you have to have situational awareness, so if your regional technique isn't going in very easily, you can't be taking an hour or two to perseverate and try to get your spinal or epidural. You just got to keep on moving. And so for, like I said, for emergent te- uh, cesarean sections, the goal is to get that baby out as soon as possible, and general anesthesia is many times the quickest way to get that accomplished.
0: Okay. Okay. So let's talk in general, what are the goals of labor analgesia? What are you trying to do?
1: So, let's talk yeah, so let's let's contrast uh, labor analgesia and surgical anesthesia. Okay. So what we do out in the labor and delivery deck is a lot different than what we do in the operating room. So in the labor and delivery suite, we try to take away sensory pain while retaining as much motor function as possible to push out a baby. So we could make a patient completely numb and insensate and happy, but we haven't really done that patient any favors in the labor and delivery room if they can't push their baby out. Now, in contrast, when you go back to the operating room, you are having a major intra-abdominal operation. We kind of gloss over the seriousness and the gravity of cesarean section, but it is a big, big, big operation. We do it so often, we kind of make light of it, but... It's a huge operation, and the goals of surgical anesthesia are to take away the sensory pain, just like in labor, but we also want to relax the abdominal musculature so that there is a still surgical field for the surgeons so that they can operate on the abdomen, deliver a baby through the abdomen, and then sew everything back up. And so you can't just relieve sensory for that. You've got to also block out the motor fibers as well.
0: All right. And so in order to do that, what are the options you have?
1: So the options are, uh, the worst option I'll call it is local anesthesia. So this is what we talk about when we're residents and we have a departmental policy that says, all right, you're not, do, you're not going to do, induce general anesthesia unless your staff physician is there. And so we're told that while we're waiting for our staff to arrive, we can tell the, uh, obstetricians, or the, uh, the obstetricians, we could say, all right, well, you can start, but just start under local. Now, you'll get a lot of bad looks from the obstetric staff when you suggest this, but this is theoretically possible, and this is sometimes what's done in the real world. One of my jobs after residency was in a small community hospital, and we took call from home, and there was one instance where my colleague was on call on a Sunday morning and the, the obstetrician was in the hospital running on a patient and she did an artificial rupture of membranes and dropped a cord. And as you know, a prolapsed cord is an indication for an emergency cesarean section. And so the patient was brought back to the operating room and they started the case under local while they called my colleague from home to come in. Now, luckily, my colleague was able to get there within 10 or 15 minutes, and they hadn't gotten very far before he induced general anesthesia, but they were able to theoretically start under local. And so this is theoretically possible, not our preferred route of anesthesia, but it can be done.
0: Okay. So what are the more preferred techniques?
1: Okay. So let's talk about a single-shot spinal. So when I think of a single-shot spinal, I think of putting a so-called smart bomb of local anesthetic directly into where it needs to go, the intrathecal space. I am putting the needle exactly where the medicine is going to work. And thus, we don't have to give that big of a dose. We don't have to worry about where the dose is going. is the single-shot spinal and repeat C-sections are elective. Or sometimes we'll have a patient who's in labor who hasn't received a labor epidural and their first anesthetic is gonna be what we give them for a cesarean section. So we'll pop in a single-shot spinal in the operating room. Now, the failure rate is pretty good. It's probably around one to three percent, but some studies have quoted it as high as 17%. Now that particular center had trainees and people who were less skilled doing a lot of their single-shot spinals, so that's probably a bit high, But I would say when I pop in a single-shot spinal, I'm expecting a failure rate of about 2% or less.
0: Okay. So, Mike, uh, let me ask you, when you get that failure rate, let's say you said about maybe 2% in your experience, do you think it's because you can't find the intrathecal space or is it that you find it and for some reason the spinal either doesn't work at all or doesn't give adequate coverage?
1: My sense is that when I have... Spinals that fail, it's because I have a false return of what I believe to be cerebral spinal fluid, and so when I inject local anesthetic for infiltration to numb the skin, I'll inject in the subcutaneous and deeper tissues, and sometimes that local anesthetic will pool, and sometimes when I put my spinal needle in and get a pop or a loss of resistance that I perceive to be popping the dura. I will get backflow of a fluid, and when I hook up my syringe with local anesthetic and try to aspirate, I will get some birefringence, but sometimes it's not exactly smooth aspiration like I would expect. And in my younger years as an attending, I would accept that less than smooth aspiration because I had the birefringence and some fluid coming back, and I would inject. And virtually every time I did that, I would be disappointed. And so my current practice is that I am very, very, very particular about making sure that I have smooth aspiration of fluid to confirm I'm in the intrathecal space.
0: Okay. That sounds good. That's, All right.
1: That's not, to, that's not to say that you can... You, I mean, there are some patients who are going to have spinal septums and they're going to have congenital abnormalities where you do inject mess in the intrathecal space, it just doesn't work. Sure. But I would say that the majority of failed spowls are due to operator error.
0: Okay. And what about the dose? Once you get your needle in, do you always use the same dose for every patient? Do you adjust it based on the patient characteristics? How do you decide?
1: Well, you know, I think that um, how I was trained is, is uh, as I remember it, was everybody got 1.6 cc's of... Hyperbaric, 0.75%, bupivacaine. If they're really short, you give a little less. If they're really tall, you give a little more. And who knows exactly what that is. And there is a study done by this guy named Halpern, and he did a spinal dose chart. He did a prospective study where he did this proposed chart based on height and weight. And basically, the fatter you are the, and the higher BMI... The lower dose you're going to have because the adiposity of your tissues kind of compresses the, the intrathecal space to a degree. Okay. And so some of these patients who are like five foot two and 100 kilos, they're getting one cc of 0.75% bupivacaine, which seems like a ridiculously small dose. And but I have used a chart at my hospital since 2014, and I can tell you that it works. In fact, I did a a research study this summer where I looked at uh, 900 charts where I used the chart, and um, there was no difference in in, uh, conversion general anesthesia when you uh, did a lower dose versus the SARIN 1.6 dose. Now, when I talk to people about using a lower dose of local anesthetic, the biggest pushback I get, and this is at academic meetings, is that in academic medical centers where you have trainees, the cesarean section times can be an hour and a half or more. And so you're really worried about the spinal not lasting long enough if you're going to use a lower dose. Right. Uh, at my institution, when I looked at my charts uh the time from placing the spinal to leaving the room that's i place the spinal the patient's laid down prep draped incisions made wound is closed the patient's moved over the bed and gone that time was 64 minutes on average and so my my hospital is a bit quicker than the average academic medical center so maybe for academic medical centers a one size fits all dose is is better but for the private practice setting I think you're going to use less phenylephrine, have less hypotension if you lower the dose based on height and weight.
0: Okay. Now, I remember as a resident always being told that we could extend the length of the spinal by adding epinephrine, maybe even by adding fentanyl or morphine. Do you do that? Is that true that those extend the length of the spinal? What do you think about that?
1: Well, I think that um, those drugs do different things. So fentanyl and morphine are opioids. And as you know, in the spinal cord, in the dorsal column, there's the substantia, substantia gelatinosa. And if you give opioids, that's going to add synergy to the block. And, it, and um, it could extend the length of the block. It certainly is, at the very least, going to add to the quality of the block. Fentanyl is short-acting, so you're going to see the effects of fentanyl during the C-section itself. Morphine is longer acting. You're going to see morphine used more for post-operative pain. Now, for epinephrine, the jury's out. There are some studies that that show it works. There are some studies that show it doesn't. There's really no harm in giving epinephrine. There are some institutions, myself included, that have these kind of urban legend pearls. I'll call them passed down with adding epinephrine. So. There's this thing out there, the so-called epi wash, where you take a syringe, you drop an amp of epi, then you squirt it out, and the hypothesis is that some of the epinephrine, a minuscule amount, is retained from your washing the syringe with epinephrine, and then you just drop the local anesthetic as usual, and that little bit of epinephrine is going to help you extend the block. There are some studies that advocate using 200 micrograms of epinephrine, which is 0.2 milligrams if it's 1 to uh, 1,000. So, so that's what I do when I want to add length to my block. I don't think this is the best evidence-based practice, but it's the best I have to go
0: on. And so just to clarify, Mike, when you, you, I think you meant 0.2 mLs. Right, I'm so sorry, have, 0.2 mLs. Right, you're right. So if you have the amp of Epi, that's a one milligram in one mL. If you take 0. 0.2 mLs of that, you'll have 200 mics. Thank you for the clarification. Sure. All right. So you uh, you can add. You know, you can do the Epi wash. Maybe that's a little bit of a legend. You can maybe add 200 mics of Epi. Sounds like the evidence is maybe, maybe not that that extends it. Certainly, many people think that it does and then fentanyl and morphine may help with post-operative pain relief. Correct. Okay. Any other kind of technique pearls to share about doing the single-shot spinal?
1: Well, one thing I like to do is that um, if I'm having trouble finding the, 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 the intrathecal space, particularly if the patient is obese and there's a lot of subcutaneous tissue to go, around, what I will do is I will go quickly to a combined spinal epidural technique where I'm essentially using the TUI as an introducer. Because in skinny patients, the one-shot spinal introducer is long enough that you can negotiate the subcutaneous tissue and that the tip of that introducer could be in an actual ligament. In larger patients, it's almost like one of those old waterbeds when you're putting that small introducer in. You really have to fix it with your non-dominant hand to keep the angle and the depth when you put the spinal needle through the introducer. And I always tell my residents that the spinal needle is very flimsy and should not be used to walk off bone. And so if you are having trouble finding the spinous processes and the route to get to the, to the intrathecal space, what I like to do is I like to use the TUI to get loss of resistance through the ligamentum flavum, and then I will insert a spinal needle through this the TUI needle, and then I'll get my return of CSF, and then I'll give my spinal dose uh, where I may or may not throw a catheter behind it depending on the situation.
0: Well, that's great, Mike. I have actually I love that idea. I've never heard of it, but I think that's, a fa- that's fantastic, and I would have probably saved me many times as a resident. So let me ask you this. Is uh, We're going to talk about epidural use for C-section in a minute, but let's say that you have a patient with an epidural. You try to dose up the epidural to prepare them for the C-section, and you don't get adequate coverage. I remember being taught that you then cannot Go ahead and do a single shot spinal because there's a really high risk if you've already dosed up that epidural of getting a high spinal. Is that true?
1: Well, so there's there's um, it's interesting you say that because in my my facility I have a basic algorithm for dealing with this exact problem. So what I tell my residents and my fellow uh, attending colleagues is that. When you have a patient with an existing labor epidural, and you're going to want to go take them back for a C-section, the first question you've got to ask yourself is, is the epidural working or not working? And if the epidural is working pretty well, go ahead and dose it with a bunch of uh, 2% liocaine, usually on the order of 10 to 20 cc's and divided doses, and see what you get. If after loading the epidural space with that uh, with that volume of solution, if that level is not adequate for surgical anesthesia, in my opinion, it is unsafe to put a spinal in at that point. Okay. So I advocate going to sleep after a fully loaded epidural. Got it. Now, if now let's say let's back up and let's say that you got the same patient. You want to go back to the operating room. Let's say the epidural hasn't been working that well, and you've had troubles with it all day, and you've given some clinician boluses, but you haven't fully loaded it. At this point, I think it's reasonable to consider doing a single-shot spinal, and the first question you got to ask yourself in this situation is whether or not the patient has an easy-appearing airway. If the patient has a reasonable, easy-appearing airway, I think it's reasonable to to, uh, proceed with a single-shot spinal. And the reason why I make that distinction with the airway is you're risking a high spinal with this technique. And so if you have a high spinal in a patient with an easy airway, you can secure the airway pretty readily and get a baby out with general anesthesia and, and not worry too much. On the other hand, if you've got a difficult airway, you do not want to be managing a difficult airway in a reaction kind of setting. Sure. You want to be prospectively uh, managing that airway. So in patients with a difficult airway, existing epidural, not working that well, what I advocate is just to do a Hail Mary, try dose up the epidural, you might be surprised. And if that doesn't work, and then you can secure the airway on your own terms and not in reaction to a high spinal
0: sounds good all right so now let 's talk about using epidurals for c section so we already talked a little about you know assessing the airway and depending on whether it 's working or not. but how do you think about uh, if you do have an epidural in place maybe let 's go through the basics of how you might use that for a c section
1: well first thing I would like to do is i want, I want to see the level of the epidural and the Really, the challenge of activating an epidural for caesarean section is I like to think of a glass of cola. So I've got this glass, and for my labor analgesic, I've filled it up half full with Diet Coke. And because for the labor analgesic, I don't want a full anesthetic, I just want kind of a white anesthetic, so I give Diet Coke. Now, with my, half, my glass half full of Diet Coke, someone has decided that the patient needs to have a cesarean section. Now, I have to fill up the rest of the epidural space and try to make it as concentrated as possible. And so, I fill up the rest of the epidural space, the, the glass, with Coke. Now, if you add half a glass of Coke to half a glass of Diet Coke, what's going to result is something that doesn't taste exactly like Coke. But it doesn't exactly taste like Diet Coke either. And so it's difficult to get a block that's dense enough to get the patient comfortable when you've already used the epidural space to transmit a dilute local anesthetic intended for labor analgesia. Okay. So those are the theoretical concerns you're up against in doing that.
0: And so in your experience, how common is it that you are successful with an epidural that's been running in place, using it for a C-section?
1: I would say that if an epidural has been working well and I am dosing it with concentrated local aztecs, such as 2% lidocaine, I would say that in my hands I'm successful 90% or greater of the
0: time. Okay, so it's still pretty good. Now, do you, ever, yeah. do you ever place an epidural primarily instead of doing a spinal for a C-section when, when a woman does not already have one in place?
1: Rarely. Um, There are good reasons not to do it, and there are some good reasons to do it. So uh, just to go back to the basics, when you're using the epidural space to provide neuroaxial anesthetic, you are relying on spread of local anesthetic by normal anatomy. You're hoping the patient has normal anatomy so that when you put your catheter in and inject local anesthetic, it's going to uniformly spread around the dura, across the dura, to its intended site of action. Now, when you do a spinal, you obviate all those concerns by going directly to the mechanism of action, the intrathecal space, and injecting the medication right there. But there are some instances where it's better to do a slow, steady ramp up of of neuraxial anesthesia. Like for instance, if someone has aortic stenosis, which is a little bit rare in pregnancy, but it still can happen with some of the congenital lesions, and so some of the stenosis can't have their systemic vascular resistance drop too quickly; otherwise, they're not going to have enough perfusion pressure for uh, to perfuse vital organs. And so, some of the stenosis, you can put an epidural in, and really carefully, slowly, incrementally dose that epidural to get the desired level without the extreme sympathectomy that's going to lead you to have problems. Uh, The other thing the epidural can do is you can redose the epidural if the surgery is going longer than expected or if the block level initially isn't exactly where you want. Now, you can have this effect with a spinal and doing a combined spinal epidural as well. So this isn't the exclusive domain of epidural only. Okay.
0: So... Now let's go back to the idea of using a labor epidural for a C-section. Are there any kind of risk factors that this might fail? How would we know whether someone is likely to succeed or not who has an epidural in place?
1: That's a great great question. So Bauer and colleagues did a meta-analysis of seven observational trials. And what they found was that there were three things that determined whether or not uh, activation of the labor epidural for cesarean section would succeed or fail. The first one was number of clinician boluses. So if you've got an epidural that's requiring constant attention from the clinician where uh, the anesthesia provider is going there all the time, redosing the epidural, that is a predictor of failure. Another, indica- another uh, risk factor is the urgency of cesarean section. So if you've got an obstetrician who really believes that the baby needs to come out sooner or later and is not going to wait for you to massage your block level, those kind of situations are going to have a higher risk of so-called failure for uh, your regional anesthetic. In other circumstances and non-urgent circumstances, your regional might be completely adequate because you've got 15 or 20 minutes to wait for the block to set up but in some of these more urgent situations you do not and so it's labeled as a failure where really maybe it's not technically it's maybe it's technically a failure but in spirit it's not really a failure. Okay. Now the last one is the most interesting to me. The last one is non-obstetric anesthesiologists providing care. And so this really begs a couple questions to me. One of which is are generalists worse at placing and managing your axial anesthetics than people who are doing primarily obstetric anesthesia? Obviously, if you're doing, if you got a two in your hands or a, you know, if you got a two in your hands every single day, you're going to be better than the guy who does it once a month. But, you know, how much better are the obstetric anesthesiologists than the generalists? I don't know. That's a good question. So that could be one of the reasons why non-obstetric anesthesiologists providing care have a higher risk of cesarean section. Another reason could be that the generalists who occasionally cover uh, the labor and delivery suite have less situational awareness of the patient and the obstetric implications, and that, this results in a lower threshold to hit the panic button and converge to general anesthesia. So if I'm an obstetric anesthesiologist and I'm on the labor and delivery suite all day, every day, and I know the obstetricians inside and out, uh, and they tell me in an operating room that they need to go to sleep right away, I might have the, uh, the expertise and the political capital to say, hey, can you give me two minutes to see if I can get this block to work before we give this patient an endotracheal tube? Sure. They're they're going to be more likely to be receptive to that situation, uh, to someone who covers their service all the time, than the person who occasionally covers it on call. That makes sense. Another interesting observation I have is that um, when you look at older anesthesiologists, like for instance, I will do these combined morbidity mortality conferences at my institution, and for a while. The obstetricians at my hospital were very upset at what they perceived was an unwillingness to put patients to sleep who had inadequate regional anesthetics. And so we'll talk about this a little later, but there is data from the 80s that showed that it was much, much riskier to do a general anesthetic than a regional anesthetic. And the younger anesthesiologists who have been trained in my opinion, are scared to induce general anesthesia in a C-section, almost to the point of being irrationally scared. And you get these situations where they want to avoid general anesthesia at all costs, and you see some very interesting behaviors, such as giving someone stun doses of ketamine, and basically making them comatose on ketamine and to avoid having to actually push propofol and instrument the airway. Now, clearly, some of these situations like ketamizing a patient to the point of uh, stupor or unconsciousness is going to be less safe than just taking the bull by the horns and managing the airway. One of my, uh, my favorite examples I talk to with uh, young residents, particularly males, is that when our epidural or spinal is failing for a C section and they you know in good faith will suggest using ketamine I'll ask them I'll say well if I was doing an open appendectomy on you and our spinal was wearing off would you want me to intubate you and give you sevoflurane or would you want me just to give you slugs of ketamine sure and the answer is is quite obvious and right. so and so I really do see this this bimodal distribution of people who are older who grew up putting people asleep regularly for C sections, who are completely comfortable doing so, and then I see people who are forty five or younger who grew up in the era of avoiding general anesthesia for C sections, sometimes making irrational decisions. And that's just my own personal observation from being a resident and being attending.
0: Okay. So how about the risk of general anesthesia. Should we? Is there? Should we be doing it a certain amount of the time? Should we avoid it no matter what? Uh, what do we know about that?
1: Well, you're you're always going to have less complications with regional if the regional is done well, and this all comes from the 1980s. So Joy Hawkins, when looking at data from a decade or so from the late 70s to the 80s, found that the mortality ratio for general anesthesia for 0 section compared to those with regional was 16.7. So that's alarmingly high. So that that really kind of moved the needle for obstetric anesthesia practice. And the anesthesia community responded uh, by decreasing the general anesthesia for C-sections. And so if you look at Brigham and Women's Hospital, which reported their own data, From 1990, their C-section general anesthesia rate was 7.2%, which is is pretty high. By 1995, they had gotten it down by half to 3.6%. And by 2005, they had actually whittled it down to less than 1%. And this begs the question, if you're doing less than 1% of your C-sections under general anesthesia, are there people who are suffering uh, unnecessarily? Are there people who just who don't have that grade of regional anesthesia and you are just trying to avoid uh, general anesthesia just for the sake of avoiding general anesthesia? It's kind of like, I'll give you an example. Let's say I'm a hospital administrator and I say, all right, from now on, if I hear of anybody who gets reintubated in the PACU, that person's going to come before the pre-review committee because that's a sign of bad quality care. Well, you're going to see a lot of interesting behavior in the PACU to avoid having to intubate somebody. Right, You're going to see people literally stand by the bedside bagging somebody for a couple hours to avoid having to put the endotracheal tube in. And I think that's kind of exactly what we've seen in some instances with trying to avoid general anesthesia. I mean, I had a well-respected colleague one time who had a high spinal on a very, very skinny, easy-appearing airway. And just he had this mental block where he could not pull the trigger and induce general anesthesia. So he had his resident essentially mass-ventilate this patient who really didn't have a secure airway for most of the case Mm. because he just did not want to... This is a very, very, very good anesthesiologist because some people, I think... I don't necessarily blame the obstetric anesthesia community for this. I think it's just a misinterpretation of the literature and good good intentions gone awry.
0: Okay. Now, one of the big drawbacks, obviously, to general anesthesia is that the airways of pregnant women tend to be more difficult than the airways of non-pregnant women. Do you think that video laryngoscopy has made a difference in that at all?
1: I think it has made a huge difference in making uh, laryngoscopy much, much easier. Um, <clears throat> undoubtedly you're going to get better views with video laryngoscopes. I don't have any literature off the top of my head to quote for to support that or negate that, but uh, definitely whether it's in the trauma bay, the spine room, the cardiac room, the labor and delivery room, the video laryngoscopes have decreased our complications for managing airways and I believe that every obstetric unit should have a video laryngoscope immediately available for use.
0: Great. So let's say you do need to go ahead and induce general anesthesia for a C-section. How are you going to do it and what are you going to think about?
1: So what you want to do is you want to, your primary consideration is to optimize oxygen delivery to the fetus. And so you're going to want to put the patient in a left lateral decubus position. There, um, there is some conflicting recent evidence that says that might not be the best thing, but for now, it's what we got. So you pre the patient as much as possible. You want the surgeons prepped and draped ready to cut so that the amount of time that the fetus is exposed to general anesthesia is minimized. We typically will induce with propofol and succinylcholine. And we don't use opioids. I mean, you can use rumifentanyl. Live centers use only fentanyl to try to blunt the sympathetic response. Not a good idea to use fentanyl because it will cross the placenta into the fetus. And then, after you secure the, the airway with the endotracheal tube, you want to tell the obstetricians they can start cutting. Now, prior to delivery, you're going to want to do uh, about 0.5 MAC volatile and 0.5 MAC nitrous. And the reason why we do this is we want to decrease the exposure of the fetus to the volatile anesthetic. We know that the nitrous oxide has a very low solubility in the blood, and it's going to wash off pretty quickly. Uh, Not so much the case for volatile. So our goals prior delivery are to decrease the exposure of the fetus to the volatile. Now, after delivery, we want to do the same thing, 0.5 Mach volatile, 0.5 Mach nitrous, but for different reasons. Here, instead of decreasing the exposure of the fetus to the volatile anesthetic, we want to decrease the exposure of the uterus to the volatile anesthetic. So after delivery of the fetus, we want the uterus to clamp down and contract so that it stops losing blood. And the volatile anesthetic will inhibit that mechanism. So what we do is we try to limit the volatile anesthetic so that the uterus can clamp down so you stop your postpartum hemorrhage.
0: Okay, great. Now let's say you have to do general anesthesia for a C-section and you have a woman who looks like she's going to have a difficult airway. How do you approach that?
1: Well, I mean, you can use the ASA difficult airway algorithm. There is also the United Kingdom Obstetric Anesthetists Association and Difficult Airway Society came up with guidelines to deal with the obstetric difficult airway. And this document essentially advocates multidisciplinary planning, nasal oxygenation, and so when you're doing your laryngoscopy, you've got this high-flow nasal prongs hooked up, and this has been shown to really attenuate the desaturation in these patients. And they also advocate limiting your intubation attempts to two. And so you don't want to be trying all day long to get this airway potentially causing trauma, which could make a what was once a maskable airway an unmaskable airway, and that is the emergency pathway. So let's say that you get a failed intubation. The, these Airway Society guidelines advocate for an early placement of a superglotic airway, what we know as an LMA. Now in Europe, they use LMAs much more aggressively than we do, but they also have second-generation devices that are much better fits of the super glo- of above the Glock opening and are better at preventing aspiration should it occur. And so, um, that's what I advocate for my residents too. If you have a patient who you put to sleep, you can't intubate. Putting an LMA down and doing cricord pressure isn't the most ideal circumstance, but it's better than losing an airway, it's better than delaying delivery of the baby.
0: Okay, that makes sense. So what happens when you do a spinal or you dose up an epidural and the patient gets very hypotensive? It's certainly something we see commonly. And how's what's the best practice for treating that?
1: So we always, I was always taught in residency circa 2005 to 2008 that the patient needed to be preloaded. We needed to get a liter of fluid in the patient before we did anything to them. So if the patient didn't have their liter in, we weren't going to do an epidural, we weren't going to do a spinal. That thinking has kind of gone by the wayside with the concept of co-loading. And it makes intuitive sense that if you put a bunch of fluid into the intravascular space with a preload, only about a fourth of it or so is going to stay in the intravascular space at best, and the rest is going to go to the, the extracellular space and then eventually the intracellular space. With co-loading, the thinking is that you set the patient up to do the spinal epidural and you start running in fluids wide open to gravity as fast as you can As you're putting the spinal in. And the thinking is that as the sympathectomy occurs, the patient is being simultaneously loaded with fluid that is going to be directly administered into the intravascular space where it's needed most to attenuate these um, sympathetic, uh, the sympathectomy. But when you start looking at what's the evidence, there really isn't any statistical significantly. There's no statistical significant difference between preloading and co-loading, so it really is kind of dealer's choice what you want to do. Now, the the study, one of the studies that I looked at that uh, talked about no statistically significant difference between preloading and co-loading, they advocated that instead you should use vasopressors. So way, way, way back in the day. In sheep's, they showed that phenylephrine caused essential uh, insufficiency. And so for a while, way before I started doing anesthesia, phenylephrine was not used because of this data. Ephedrine was preferentially used. But then ephedrine was showed, shown to cause uh, fetal tachycardia and resultant acidosis. And then in humans, phenylephrine was shown not to cause um, the uteroplacental insufficiency. So phenylephrine is now the first-line agent, and we use it when the heart rate is 60 or above. When the heart rate gets below 60, we start thinking of ephedrine for its inotropic and chronotropic effects. But there is newer evidence to show that perhaps low-dose norepinephrine should be used instead of phenylephrine. And the reason for that is that norepinephrine Will increase cardiac output, along with perfusion pressure. Great. So some of the some of the barriers to norepinephrine are that a lot of people don't want to use norepinephrine unless you have a central line, but the studies that are uh, as of to date use low dose norepinephrine.
0: That's great, Mike. And we'll put uh, the references up uh, on the site so people can look at those articles if they want. So. One thing that comes up a lot is if you're going to do a C-section, do you need to do any kind of aspiration prophylaxis? What do you think about that?
1: Well, I subscribe to what the ASA guidelines on obstetric anesthesia uh, say. And so for a patient who is uh, NPO, if you're going to have, I'm sorry, for NPO guidelines, if you're going to have elective surgery, elective surgery being a tubal ligation, or a repeat cesarean section, you're going to have two hours for clear liquids, six to eight hours for solids. Now, one of the things we come up against a lot on the labor and delivery unit is when you have a non-elective case that needs to be done where the patient isn't NPO. At this point, it becomes a negotiation between the obstetric colleagues for risks and benefits. So I will say that someone who is scheduled for a repeat cesarean section, who has McDonald's on the way to her scheduled repeat cesarean section, should not get surgery that day. That's, that's pretty obvious. Now, in contrast, somebody who has been in labor for 12 hours with ruptured membranes, who has failure to progress, who drank eight ounces of Sprite a half an hour ago, that person is a different kind of NPO than the patient I described before. So it's really a negotiation with the OBs as to when to proceed to the operating room, and there is really no one-size-fits-all. It has to be a multidisciplinary judgment to decide when the risks of surgical intervention or when the risks of aspiration are outweighed by the benefits of surgical intervention.
0: Okay, and if you are going to get prophylaxis, do you have everybody take Bicitra or do you use other things? How do you deal with that?
1: So the guidelines are to use an H2 blocker to decrease the pH, to use a gastric proconnect such as met- met- metoclopramide to speed gastric emptying, and to use a nonparticulate acid such as bicitra as a chemical means to directly raise the pH of the uh, gastric contents.
0: Okay. And do you do all three for your urgency sections? I will when
1: I'm, when I'm uh, able to do it.
0: Okay. Great. Mike, this has been great. Anything to add before we sign off?
1: Not that I can think of. This has been pretty, uh, pretty comprehensive.
0: Yeah, really. Excellent job. Thanks again for coming on the show, and we'll do another one soon.
1: Enjoyed it, Jay. Thank you very much.
0: All right. That is it for today. I hope that you enjoyed having Dr. Hofkamp back on the show. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can leave comments on the website at ACRAC.com, that's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can see all of the episodes, and again, leave comments, let us know. How do you do uh, anesthesia for emergent cesarean sections or urgent cesarean sections? Is it any different from what Mike has laid out? Let us know, we can all learn from what you have to say. And of course, you can also email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And by the way, it helps even if you've already done it. If you do it again, it helps boost the show up higher on people's searches so they can find it. We'd really appreciate it if you'd consider taking the time to do that. And also check out Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash ACRAC where you can become a patron of the show. Even if you just donate a dollar or two, it can really help defray the cost of making the show since we do put it out there free of cost and want to keep it that way. We would really appreciate that as well. Thank you so much. All right, that is it for today for the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Mike Hofkamp. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.